Welcome to The Unlocked Creative. Has it been on your heart to write and self-publish a book? It's simpler than you think to become a published author. Hi, I'm Siobhan, and after decades of having a first draft, I finally decided to take my power back and bring my book to life. In less than three months, I was able to self-publish my first book, and my mission is to help you to do the same. In this podcast, you'll learn how to start writing, find time to write, get unstuck and find motivation, learn the complete process of writing a book, uncover your unique story and who you're writing for, self-publish and market your first book. You can do anything with your God-led creativity. If you are ready to step into unlocking your own potential in your life, you are in the right place. I'm your girl. Grab your cat, your coffee, and turn on your computer. Let's write. What's your story? Is it of overcoming trauma, of how faith changed you, or something a bit oddball, like how your cactus taught you the meaning of less is more? Have you ever wondered if you really can show this universal truth that you know, a window of your life, by sharing it in a book? If you've ever wondered if your story could help someone else, this is the episode for you. I'm so honoured today to invite you to this conversation with Marion Roach-Smith, who is the author of four books, including The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardised text for writing and life. A former staffer at the New York Times, she has been a commentator on NPR's All Things Considered and a talk show host on Sirius Satellite Radio. She currently runs a writing lab called The Memoir Project and teaches memoir worldwide at marionroach.com. You are going to love this conversation. Enjoy. Marion, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out. It's truly a joy. I'd love for you to tell us about how you came to write memoir and why you do it. I came to write it really haphazardly. I was a very young writer. I had a job straight out of college for the New York Times. And I was 21 when I got the job. And almost immediately upon joining the Times, my father died. And then six months later, completely unexpectedly, my mother, who was only 49 years old, came down with Alzheimer's disease. Now everybody's heard of it. No one had heard of it then. And I ended up writing a piece for the New York Times Magazine at a very young age. By the time about, I was about 26 when I ended up writing it. And it was published in the New York Times Magazine, which is about the most powerful magazine in the world. And it was a very surprising thing to happen to me. And I immediately ended up on all these talk shows and all these radio shows having to do with this, quote, new illness. It Now it doesn't seem possible that that could be, but I was the first person to ever write about it in a first person account. And I remember a colleague of mine at the time saying, hey, nice piece of memoir and thinking, what? That, no, that was a news story. And not really understanding what I had done. I was that young and that naive. And what I realized was that if you really want to make people care, put a face on the story. And I just didn't know that as a news person. I learned it fast. And I fell in love with the genre. And I keep writing it because I think we share our humanity. I think that when you write about how you triumphed over something and I read the stages of that transcendence, I feed my own sense of triumph. 
And I believe memoir is a tremendous connection, human to human, where we feed each other what it is we know after what we've been through. Mm. And what exactly is memoir? So I make the distinction, I keep it really simple. I'm not an academic. There are whole academic conferences designed for people to scream at each other about, is this creative nonfiction? Is this memoir? Is this autobiography? I keep it really simple. Autobiography is a depiction of one's entire life and memoir is a depiction of one aspect of one's life. And I always teach people, and I'm the only one who teaches it this way, but if you write memoir, each piece of memoir, from one area of your expertise at a time, and you probably have a dozen areas of expertise. Write from one at a time and you'll have a writing life. If you make the mistake of trying to write that big, big book that starts with your great, 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 great grandfather and ends with what you had for lunch today, first of all, that's a book you'll never finish because there's always tomorrow's lunch to write about. And second of all, no one's ever going to read it. So your areas of expertise, maybe you've raised dogs. I've raised 12 of them. I write and publish all the time about my dogs. I don't write memoir that combines all my areas of expertise. I have stuff that I write about that comes from what I know after raising 12 dogs. I have stuff that I write about that comes from after 30 years in the garden. I have stuff that I write about that comes from caregiving. Each of those has a point of view or an area of expertise or more to the point, something you know after you've been through that. And if you write from that area of expertise, you can write forever. You mentioned this a little earlier that we share our humanity when we write a memoir. I really loved there was a quote in your book, The Memoir Project, where you said, as we live, we learn, and if we write about what we learn, we share our humanity. That is, as long as you don't swagger and brag. So <laughs> so can you yeah. help us? How do we get the balance right between sort of you know, writing from a place of knowing and experience and then also not mm -hmm. being, you know, a braggart really. Right. We don't want you to preach to us. Get up, get, just come down off that damn pulpit <laughs> right now. So how you do that is you've got to go back and remember, how did you learn what you know now? The reason that you're writing now is because you have some authority. You have given care to someone for 15 years who died and you know what it's like to walk someone home, right? But don't stand up there and preach at me and tell me how to do it. Instead, go back to the beginning of the story and show me the 56 or 75 or 22 scenes of your own transcendence from when this was an overwhelming and unimaginable assignment to when you know that you did your job. I look at those scenes as beads on an abacus and you show me how your transcendent experience happened to you and what you learned along the way. So in other words, drop the expertise, you're writing from an area of expertise, but you're recreating the scenes how, of how you learned that expertise along the way. We don't just want you writing from here. I know everything about taking someone to the place of death. No, 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 no. Go back and recreate it for us. So that's how you do it. You don't swagger. You don't brag. You show us. In fact, you show us you at your worst a lot of the times. And we get to see you change. If you show us your change, you will inspire our own. And you have to be a human being, right? You have to be a person who's willing to take the time 
to go back and consider the moments along the way of this story. And I believe that absolutely everyone has stories to tell, stories they can write. It's just that none of us is born knowing how to do it. I was the luckiest writer in the world. I lived in New York. When I got a book offer to write a book from that first magazine piece, I got five book offers within five days of that piece being published. That's an extraordinary thing to happen to a 26-year-old. And it was a little overwhelming. But I knew that one of those offers came with the best living editor in the world. Her name is Nan Talese. And I knew at that age, from hearing other people talk about editors, that she would help me. And she taught me how to write books. So the thing is that you have to learn. And that's a wonderful thing to do, to learn how to write a book, to be able to be taught how to write a book. And it's a gorgeous and wonderful experience. So nobody should think they can't do this. Now, a really important question is, do you smell books? (laughs) You mean people don't? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So I've passed this on to my daughter and my mum thought that it was amusing that when she read her book when she had to stay over that she actually, you know, just sniffed the book um, mm-hmm. snuck that in. So I said, oh, love yeah, it. I think that's probably something I've introduced. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. Sure. I love the feel of them. I love the smell of them. I don't know that I've ever tasted one. <laughs> I probably have. Um, you know, in those early childhood years, of course I did. I probably ate the books. But sure, it's a an experience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you want to really feel it. Mm-hmm. Marion, what what is it like having a sister who also writes? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're going to get into that, are we? (laughs) Yeah. My sister is an extraordinary human being. She is um, America's premier gardening writer, and she's an older sister, and she is really my model in so many things. She's given me the courage to do so many of the things I do. She's also doesn't remember anything about our childhood. So whenever I, we were at a dinner party recently and before COVID and uh, I told a story, everybody laughed. I felt good. The silence descended on the room. And my sister said, that never happened. (laughs) (laughs) This is the beautiful thing about memoir is she's right. That's not the way it happened to her, but it was the way it happened to me. And so having a sister who's a writer can be confounding because she, you know, without a a fairly strong sense of humor, I could take it badly that she'll say, Marion, your second grade friend, your best friend, he was imaginary. That person never existed. And she swears by that. And I tell you, I I, I mean, now I can't find him in any of my class photos. That's true. But so she's sort of my conscience. She's sort of the person who goads me along. She's absolutely my role model. But it's also wonderful to have someone to call every single day and say, I just wrote myself into a hole. Here's what I wrote. What do you think it's about? Can you help me out here? And she does the same with her work. She'll show me, tell me, we compare. So the the short answer is it's the best thing you can have is someone else who's invested in your success. This is an essential quality for writers, and it needs to be somebody who's got a good eye. Because just having someone in your family read your stuff who then says, neat, or that's so good, is completely useless. She's a great editor, 
And so she'll say, that thing doesn't work. You got to throw that away and start again. As many times as she says, yeah, that's got something there. So that's, that's the long answer is, is it's a wonder, but you need to have people in your life who are invested in your success is the single most important thing about other people who write. Mm. And can you tell me how you feel about writer's block? I don't think there the thing exists. I, 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 you know, I hate, literally hate all the memes online, on Instagram, on Facebook about how hard writing is. I think they do no one a bit of good. And writer's block is just not knowing what to say next. Writer's block is cured with research. Mm-hmm. Research in memoir is easy. You call your sister and you say, what was the name of the dog that bit me when I was a kid? What was the name of my imaginary friend? <laughs> what was the name of... And she says, oh God, I don't know, but you've got your high school yearbook, right? And she reminds me, yearbooks are are research. The telephone book can be research. I went down to the local historical society a few years ago and discovered that my house that I live in was a speakeasy during prohibition when America banned drinking um, in the early part of the 20th century. That's interesting. And I'll write about that at some point. So writer's block isn't real. Do a little research. You'll move forward. Another really burning question for people, how many drafts do we need to write before a book is actually ready to publish? As many as it takes. So years ago, I set my sights on a very specific goal, which I do have done in my writing career. I want to write for that publication. In the US, we have this thing called public radio. And the big deal was to be a commentator for public radio, a, an essayist. They had these very quirky essays that they don't run anymore. And I set my sights on it. And I wrote one. It took me three weeks. It's only 615 words long. That's the maximum number of words. And I always tell this story when people ask me this question. 615 words. I wrote it. It was called My First Autopsy. I had just, I was writing a book on forensic science. I had been to an autopsy. It was a near occasion to faith. I had a tremendously surprising experience in the autopsy room. And I wrote this piece for them. It took me three weeks. I worked on it eight hours a day. That's absolutely true. It was draft number 47 that I sent to them. Now that's not including the hundreds of edits I made, but it took me that long. I got paid 150 bucks for that essay. That essay changed the course of my writing life. Once I became a commentator for NPR's All Things Considered, I had a ticket in everywhere. So it's a long answer. Short version is as many as it takes to get it as good as it can be. Do not ever let something leave your desk if it is not as good as it can be. I'm pausing there because I'm thinking, okay, so you wrote this piece, but before that, you had this experience where you went and, you know, were part of, well, hopefully not part of, but were present <laughs> in the room of, present in the room of an autopsy. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about this in terms of what that did for your, for how you think about writing and for your, really for your career as a writer? Mm-hmm. I had, a book that I can't, that I that I co-wrote with America's f- leading forensic pathologist, and he got me access to many remarkable things that nobody gets access to. To study blood spatter analysis, I went to blood spatter analysis school for a wow. week. To study bugs 
forensic entomology. I went to forensic entomology school. These are these are schools that only law enforcement people are allowed into, but I got to go. It was amazing. And I went to autopsies. And in the autopsy room, what I saw was metaphor everywhere. As soon as he opened up the body of a, and you have to remember, this is a murdered man, still had the garret around his throat. This person who was dead also had full-blown AIDS and had been dead for 10 days. This was not a pretty sight. And I was terrified. I'm the most squeamish person I know. I have to lie down to get my blood drawn. So what I learned was that my counterphobia, being terrified, was the best thing that could possibly happen to my writing because suddenly I was so hypersensitized to everything that everything I was seeing and smelling and hearing, everything, and it was forming all these metaphors in my head. And when he used the Y incision and cut open the body, and I was as far away from that body as I could possibly be at the beginning of this autopsy, I started to move forward because the first thing I saw was how the human rib cage harbors the human heart. And by the end of the autopsy, five and a half hours later, I was standing next to the wide open body of a murdered man dead for 10 days who had full blown AIDS saying, what's that? Look how that's connected. Oh my God, that's amazing. So that's also a great writing metaphor because writing is all about annotation. We pull from what we've heard, seen, felt, tasted, thought about all our lives and the connections are real. And you have to, as a writer, palpate them. You have to go and say, no, no, really, math is music and music is math. And there are metaphors between childhood and death. And there are, wow. And that's what that experience did for me. It reassured me of the metaphors in life and the accessibility of the annotation for writing. What's, what's a major reason not to write a memoir? Other people, family, the response that other people will have is the thing that I talk to. I teach and I, I teach memoir. I've been teaching memoir for over 25 years. I teach online. I teach in person. I do a lot of things. And the thing I hear most is what will so-and-so think? How do I get past X? And memoir has consequences. That is absolutely true. Your sister will say, that never happened. And you get to practice from this day forward anyone listening to this who's writing memoirs, so practice this sentence, you're right, Margaret, that's my sister's name, you're right, Margaret, that's not the way it happened to you. That's the way it happened to me. So you have to own that, that it's your version, it's deeply subjective. But after that, think of the myriad topics on which we publish memoir. There's an awful lot of subjects within the genre that have to do with people experiencing trauma. And so abuse memoirs, alcoholism memoirs, um, are going to tell stories of some bad damage, some real familial damage. And so people are afraid of the responses they may get. And the advice I always give everybody is write it first, show it to no one. Do not tell your abuser. Do not tell your family who's still drinking. Do not tell the person who did you harm that you're doing this. Get yourself one or two other people who are invested in your success, a good writing coach or a very good editor, 
a friend who edits, get somebody if you to, to bounce ideas off of. But don't play into this fear of what so-and-so going to think. I don't know what you've got until you write it. So write it first and then let's see what you've got. But that's the number one thing that keeps people from writing is what other people will think. Absolutely. There's definitely among people I know the the sense that I need to tell the truth, but I don't want to cause harm. So mm-hmm. how do we sort of balance that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, writers, journalists, I was trained as a journalist and journalists live by the same code as doctors. First, do no harm. And you wouldn't think so <laughs> looking at the stuff that's in the press, this fascination with, you know, celebrity and all this stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about journalism, good journalism. Um, you know, we're taught first, do no harm. Go look, don't go in with intent. Don't go in to ruin anybody. Go in and find out what the truth is. And the truth is a tough thing. You know, whose truth? Your truth? Their truth? The big is, are you under the impression that there's one big truth out there that you're going to find? It's not going to happen. You know, any family event, choose the happiest holiday of your entire life. Let's say it was Christmas 2014, right? And if you have three brothers and sisters and two parents, and if you're lucky enough to have some grandparents or aunts and uncles, bring them all to the table you know, pretend in your head, you brought them all back to the same Christmas table and then send them all home. Now call them and ask them if it was the best Christmas of their lives. It was the best of yours, but they'll say, what? Christmas 2014? I don't even remember it. Or, oh my God, no, that was the night Uncle Henry got drunk and fell on the back of Sandra. Or, you know, that's the night the dog threw up. So everybody had a different experience. And my sister and I, who we've written alternate voice memoir a lot, Um, We have agreed that we are different because we grew up in the same household, not in spite of having grown up in the same household. And I think that's a really really important thing to keep in mind. We differ, and there's not going to be consensus ever between two people on the exact same event. Does that make sense? It does, and it's fascinating. And the experience of telling a story in a group of people and then having a family member say, that's not how it happened at all, (laughs) is probably something that many people can relate to. Everybody can relate to it, I'm sure. It's just, it's it's the wonder of family. You know, there's not one big truth out there. I always say to my students, the truth is family is a pizza and you get one slice, but the minute somebody takes their slice away, the truth is gone. It's evaporated, right? There is no reconstructing the pizza. And a word that you use a lot, that I would love for you to tell us more about is propinquity. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I, I always tell people to write in propinquities and I think it's because I, I learned how to shoot snooker and billiards and pool when I was a little kid. I had a grandfather who is from, uh, from Southport, England, real um, working class, wonderful, very colorful, person who taught us all to gamble and to, to shoot lots of billiards when we were kids. And I was always fascinated by the bank shot. You know, you don't, the straight ones are so obvious, but the bank ones really interested me as a kid and that whole idea of the angle shot. And so propinquities is a word I use that kind of comes from, it's derived from this, this youth spent, you know, sort of corrupted youth shooting pool. And it has to do with don't go for the straight shot at the for that Christmas story with the family. 
you know, I don't want the Christmas sticky pudding story so much. I want to know what was going on in the background. I want to know that off story, that story that's just slightly off the center main vein of Christmas. And so it's a propinquity. It's connected to the Christmas tale. But the most interesting essays we read do not just relate at 7.30, the family arrived for dinner, and at 8 o'clock, we ate, and at 9.30, we had dessert. Like, that's so boring. But if you can bring to the Christmas table what was really percolating underneath that dinner, you know, the thing that nobody was talking about, that everybody knew that our brother was gay, but we nobody's talking about it, and how we don't talk about things, like, that's a really great story. See the difference? It's propinquitous to the Christmas dinner, but it's what's really going on in families. And it's just one of the things that I absolutely love about your book, The Memoir Project. So thank you for writing this book. And can you tell us a little bit more about it and how you help people to write a memoir? Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you. Yes. The Memoir Project is a, is a paperback book that came out about 11 years ago from Grand Central Publishing. And I rewrote it and republished it last year, also with Grand Central, because it needed to be updated. And it is a the I call it the subtitle is a, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing and life. And it's just my favorite book of the four books I've written. And it tells you how to write memoir. It shows you how to write memoir. And it's small, and you can throw it in your purse. And I'm hopeful that it is as helpful as I meant it to be. And around it, I built a business about eight years ago where I teach online. I teach worldwide <clears throat> at this point. I have people in Karachi, Pakistan in classes. I have people in Australia in classes, and I have lots of people um, all over the world. And it's located at marionroach.com. And it's been a really big adventure to turn a business um, from that little book and create a worldwide converse, help create a worldwide conversation on how to write memoir, how to write what you know, as we say. Can you tell us how we find you and connect with you? Yes, thank you for asking at marionroach.com, M-A-R-I-O-N-R-O-A-C-H.com. And send me a hello on the site. We've got a newsletter there. I've got a podcast that I do called QWERTY, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. That's all about writing. It's by, for, and about writers. But it's all there on the site. And the book is there. And links to all of my classes are there. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you so much. And that was Marion Roach-Smith, author and teacher of memoir. Don't forget to check out the QWERTY podcast and find out more about Marion and memoir at marionroach.com. And if you got value out of today's show, please leave a five-star rating and a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, even if you're an Android user. It helps other writers like you to find the show and get value out of it too. Till next time, take care.